Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And we are so excited to welcome veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur Mark Randolph to the show. As you may know, Mark is the co-founder and founding CEO of Netflix. He's mentored hundreds of early stage entrepreneurs and helped see dozens of successful tech ventures in addition to many unsuccessful ones. And Mark is the author of the best-selling book, That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Mark, we thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's exciting to be with you. Thanks for having me. We love the book because you have a great way of making the reader feel like they're right alongside you as Netflix goes from an idea to a big business. You left Netflix in 2003 and you say you're glad you waited 16 years to actually write about Netflix. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. You know, one reason I wrote the book was I did want to give people kind of the untold story of Netflix. Since there's all kinds of myths and false founding stories. And I thought it was an interesting thing for people to really understand how a startup works. But the real thing is I didn't really understand why we had been successful. And it takes perspective to look back and isolate which aspects were luck Um, which were doing things well, which were mistakes, Uh, what was my contribution, what was it of a team. Um, And I think I really was able to sort out some of the truths behind not just the success of Netflix, but some of the things that I felt anybody could use to um, make an idea become real. What I thought was so fascinating was that Netflix was actually your seventh startup. And along the way, you said that you learned a very valuable lesson. And I I love this. Nobody knows everything. How did you learn that along the way? And looking back, how did that impact everything? Well, actually, it's even stronger than that. It's not nobody knows everything. It's nobody knows anything. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, uh, the real thing is nobody knows uh, a good idea from a bad idea uh, until they've seen whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And then, of course, they're the expert at it. But it's a tremendously liberating thing once you realize that no one knows in advance a good idea from a bad idea. Because what that says is that any idea could be a good idea. For me, you know, I, I call the book, you know, that'll never work because that is what everybody told me when I went around saying I have this idea to do DVD rental by mail. I mean, that's what the investors, potential investors told me, potential employers, you know, even my own wife told me that. But once you realize that no one really knows, then the only way to figure it out is to try it. And that's why it's such a powerful phrase. It suggests If you have an idea, just do it. You're going to learn more in one hour of doing it than you are in a lifetime of thinking about it. How do you shut off those voices, though, if they're telling you that's not going to work, that's a stupid idea? How do you shut them off and say, well, you know what, maybe it just will? So part of it is confidence that comes from uh, doing it um, and learning little by little, wow, that the thing that someone said wasn't going to work it. I actually got it to work. Maybe that person I thought was an authority um, isn't an authority. But that's, a, that's just a, a, a simple way to say it. But what's, what you're really doing, the trick, if there's something you want to apply, is you have to figure out easy, quick, 
cheap, simple ways to try your ideas. Because if, for example, the only way to try an idea is to raise lots of money, well, then of course it's never going to happen because everyone says it's not going to work and you just can't get someone to lend you the money. Or if you say, I can't do this without five years of education, you're not going to bet on something you don't know the answer to. But if you can figure out a way to take your idea and quickly and easily and simply try it, you'll very quickly find out ways to prove that, in fact, the people who said it wouldn't work were wrong, that it would work. And how do you do that? You compare testing to climbing. Yeah, I, pretty much I compare everything to climbing. That's like, it's, like, <laughs> it's the analogy for just about, uh, it's a one-size-fits-all um, uh, analogy. But it, so I will, I will, I'll use the, my, favorite, my favorite analogies from climbing is I do a lot of rock climbing. And, I, and if anyone has ever gone rock climbing, whether it's in the gym or not, um, you kind of realize that, first of all, it's much easier to climb up than it is to climb down. Um, and so there's different levels as you start out as a rock climber. And the first one is these holds are so big that you can easily climb up. And if you don't like what you find, then you climb back down again. But then when things get harder, all of a sudden you realize, well, I can go up, but I'm not sure I can come down. And that's when the paralysis sets in. You stand at the bottom of the route and you look up. And because you can't climb down, you are unwilling to leave the ground unless you can see a way all the way to the top. And sometimes you can and you go on up. But then comes the case where you can't see all the way to the top. There's an overhang or it's a false summit. Then you're on the ground for hours looking. Can I figure out what's up there? I don't want to start up. I don't know I can make it all the way. But what someone who has this no one knows anything attitude does is they start. They go up seven or eight holds. And lo and behold, once they're up seven or eight holds, now they can see over the overhang. Oh, there's the way. And you go up seven or eight more holds. Oh, there's the way. It's having this confidence that I can't see my way around the corner from here. But if I take a few more steps, maybe I can. It is what an entrepreneur does every day. We have zero idea of whether our ideas are going to work. They haven't been done before. There's no way to capture enough data. What you do is say, I'm going to start and start learning. Everyone says that's a bad idea. Well, let's figure out why it's a bad idea. Maybe I get a glimmer of hope of how to try something different next time. We did that with Netflix. I've done that with every one of my other startups. It's what I coach every single person I work with. You just have to start because that is where the learning comes in. When everyone says it's a bad idea, they are right. But your job is to figure out why. That is the process of being an entrepreneur. And how to make it a good idea. Uh, yes. And, how to, and well, maybe, maybe it's, the idea is totally unrelated. What you really should be doing is not falling in love with your idea. You should be falling in love with the problem. And then... You have to come up with not just one idea, but hundreds of ideas and try each of them out because each test, each thing you try, sure, it's going to fail, but you get a glimmer of learning from it, a glimmer of little hope that informs the next thing you want to try. And then that informs the next thing you want to try. I mean, listen, the reality is every single successful company you can point to, I guarantee the idea that the founder had when they started was a totally different one. Mm -hmm. They were iterating their way to what was successful. In your own world, you used to say, hey, let's do a podcast. Um, I'm sure the, what you envisioned at the very beginning is not exactly what it is now. 
Exactly. You learned things along the way. You learned what worked and what didn't work, what resonated, and you applied those things. Mm-hmm. That is the process. It's so funny that you talk about Netflix not working as the red envelopes getting mailed as DVDs, because I think we must have been one of the first families that did that. And oh my God, I thought it was the coolest thing at the time. I thought it was fantastic and way easier than going to Blockbuster, but clearly that's not what Netflix ended up being. Why wasn't the DVD rental a sustainable idea at the time? I mean, obviously it's not now, but back then. So there's two phases. So the idea that I was pitching to people, the idea that everybody said that'll never work was DVD rental by mail. But the original idea was not very much more than taking a regular movie rental store and putting it online. And when we launched on, boy, 22 years ago last week, on April 14th, 1998, that was, it's what it was. There was due dates. There were late fees. There was not a lot of innovation here. And it didn't work. Nobody rented from us. And if they did, they didn't rent again. But we kept trying things. And we tried things for a year and a half. Year and a half of one failed test after another. Each one giving us a glimpse of hope. And it wasn't until a year and a half later in the fall of 1999 that just almost on a fluke, we tested a subscription model. And more than a subscription model, a weird subscription model where there was no due dates and no late fees and where you made a list in advance and let us pick something off the list to ship to you. All these crazy ideas that I never could have dreamed would be the things that would transform the business. But it was at that point when we finally stumbled on that bizarre combination of features that it did begin to work. And that was the moment that marked the shift from us being a random startup to in some ways being a real company. When you first came up with the idea for Netflix, were you thinking, oh, this is gonna be just a billion dollar company? And I mean, what were your dreams at that point? Well, not in a million years. And it kind of speaks in many ways to what it really means to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, because I think now it's been glorified in this bizarre way where there's movies about entrepreneurship and TV shows and magazines and college degrees. And it's become conflated with this is a way to be rich or famous or, you know, be at parties or be on Shark Tank or something like that. Uh, but when I started as an entrepreneur, none of that stuff was real. Back then you did it just because you loved solving problems. You loved that process I described before of taking something on that no one had any idea if it would work or not. And starting Netflix was no different. I never dreamed that it was going to be a billion dollar uh, company. I just went, this would be kind of cool to f- if we can figure out how to do DVD rental by mail. And in fact, my initial aspirations were quite modest. You know, I didn't tell anyone how modest they were, but I said, gosh, if we can be the size of a single blockbuster store. Oh, that'd be awesome. And that was like $750,000 a year, which we hit within months. And then I said, okay, and I did this publicly to my crew. Let's set the goal. Let's be one of the top 10 video rental chains. And that took a bit longer, you know, uh, maybe a couple of years. But then you look and go, yeah, we did it. We're at $5 million in revenue. But then you kind of lift your eyes up and you see Blockbuster and they're $6 billion. You know, the thought you could take that on is ridiculous. 
and you pass them and you look up and there's an even bigger target. I mean, but you, you never, never dream that you'll be 182 million subscribers and that just this week, the market cap for Netflix is bigger than the Disney company. I mean, you, you would have had me committed if I had told you that was what <laughs> I dreamed about. But you decided not to put any money in, into the Netflix idea at first. Why? I kind of have a principle that when you're doing something like starting a company, it's, better, it's best to use other people's money. And that's not because you don't believe in the idea, because what you're putting into this is something way more valuable than your own money. You're putting in your time. You are fully committed. And so you want to share the risk a little bit, but there's a more fundamental reason for how healthy it is to go out and get other people to invest. And it's because it forces you to get out of your echo chamber. All of us take our ideas sometimes and we nurture them in this nice, warm, gentle womb of our brains, where of course there they can be hugely successful. We can imagine <laughs> having the million subscribers and we can imagine all the amazing things we'll do once everyone's using this product, but we're never forced to collide it with reality. And there is something very uh, shocking about taking this idea out of your warm womb of a mind and subjecting it to someone else's scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's not, you can go to your friends and go, what do you think of my idea? And they go, oh gosh, that sounds great. And you go, wonderful. Will you invest $25,000? And that backpedaling is fast and furious at that point. <laughs> so you, you need to, you, having, getting investors involved is a really good way to make sure you're not crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm guessing that you must be spending some time in quarantine looking at how Netflix seems to be even bigger than ever right now. And I'm wondering if you have regrets about leaving the company in 2003, just seeing the giant it's become. No, zero. Um, wow. Zero is wrong. Um, three parts per million. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, on one hand, yes, there's some fascinating things that are probably going on there. And I would love to be sitting around that boardroom table uh, with those people solving some of these really complicated, interesting problems. But listen, on the other hand, in the other thousand hands, uh, I am the luckiest person you're ever going to meet in that um, I am doing the thing that I love doing. Um, I learned, I was really lucky to learn a long time ago, two important things, you know, one, what I'm good at and the other one, what I love doing. And the answer to both of those is early stage companies. And that's what I get to spend my time doing. I get to work with early stage companies. I get to work with young, um, or not say young, but early stage founders. I get a chance to sit around that table with really smart people solving really hard problems. But more importantly, now I get to do that where I get to go home at night and they have to stay up all night working on these things. Mm-hmm. I get to pursue the other parts of my life that make me balanced. I get to get outside and do all the outdoor activities that I love. I get to spend amazing amounts of time with my family, which I enjoy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've got a, a fantastic life and I love that company. I mean, it's of my own flesh and blood and DNA, but I have no regrets. Uh, it is better without me. I am better without it. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm so delighted to watch it grow up and be on its own and living in its own apartment and having its own job. <laughs> <laughs> and so looking back then, what's given you more fulfillment than anything is really just the scrappy part of everything where you had to be gritty and kind of develop the idea along the way more so than just looking back and, and seeing the company now and thinking to yourself, man, I really built something that was amazing that turned into something amazing. No, sure. You, I mean, I, you, you, you have to figure out where your personal fulfillment each day comes from, but I'm not going to get it. I, I, I don't get it from looking back and uh, going, oh, look at what great I was or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm certainly psyched it did that, but it, it, in many ways, the success of a company is the result of factors way beyond me. There are lots of luck, lots of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, but I love the, the I love the team I built. I love the DNA, love the culture we created there. Those are all amazing things. But I love the the work I've done with other companies. I love this. I love that process. I love solving these problems. And so, some of the most fun ones don't make it, but uh, you give them a great shot, and that's that's fun too. What do you say to someone who's lost a job or maybe fears losing their business during this time of tremendous economic upheaval? What should they be doing and, and what words of wisdom would you have for them? So, first of all, I mean, I, I, I have tremendous empathy for what's going on um, in the world. I mean, not just for the people who've lost their jobs, uh, and for the businesses which go out of business, but I have a lot of empathy for the people who are managing these companies um, that they're having to downsize dramatically. I mean, losing all your customers over a mat in one week really has a way of focusing your mind. And I know how these how personal these issues can become. You know, back in I guess it was two thousand and one. Netflix had a layoff, a very large percentage of their employees. And that is one of the hardest things you ever have to do because it's not just bringing someone in your office and letting them go. This is bringing somebody into your office who has worked alongside you for years, who has done nothing wrong, who has given everything they've had to help you make your dream come true. And now you have to tell them there's not a place for them anymore. And that is just wrenching. But what I'm telling people is that as hard as this is, you have to be looking at silver linings. You have to be looking at what opportunities this presents. And in one hand, lots of companies know they need to restructure themselves. They know that they've pivoted, they've changed direction, and that the structure they've built for their company has lagged behind the new initiatives they're in. And you have to say, this is a chance that when I do rebuild, that I can rebuild in a thoughtful way. How would I build this from scratch? And a lot of people are thinking that, you know, we're thinking that six months ago and going, but that's not really an option I have. And now in some ways, it is an option you have. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of what I'm coaching people is there's so much uncertainty here that all you can do is put your company, put your business, put whatever it is you're managing into a into this defensive posture that you can maintain for a long time and prepare yourself not to spring out of it instantaneously because things are not going to change overnight, but to say, put yourself in a position that when I see things improving in a way that I think I can take advantage of, that then I know how to rebuild. I've thought about the process I'll use. 
I think about the steps that I'll take. And most importantly, realize you're not in this by yourself, that everyone is going through this um, and that this is tremendously uncertain and turbulent waters that you cannot know what's going to happen. And all you can do is recognize, um, I don't know, I'm going to do the best I can. Like you said, you mentor entrepreneurs who have had good ideas and bad ideas. And I would imagine that if somebody is working on their company with you, they would think it must be a success. It's going to be successful at some point. At what point do you tell them, you know what, maybe you need to go back to the drawing board and make something else to do? <laughs> It'd be so hard. <laughs> That's a really interesting question. And, it, and as soon as you were saying that, I was going back, what, have I done that? Um, and, and sometimes, but the, the thing is you somewhat misstate it because you're, again, perhaps you're thinking a bit much too, too much about the idea. And what I am coaching somebody is not how to make their idea real. I'm coaching them through the process of finding their way to solving a problem. Because, and this is not an exaggeration, every idea is a bad idea. Every idea you hear, I take them with a grain of salt. Uh, I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. They sound good to me, but I, they're probably bad. They sound bad to me, they're probably good. And I've, <laughs> I, I, I've trained myself to go, I, I can't tell. So I'm looking for something very different in deciding who to work with. I'm looking for the person who I know will have the creativity to figure out quick and easy and cheap ways to test these things. I'm looking for someone who has the persistence to keep on trying things when each of the things they try don't work and they have to look for that glimmer of hope that will inform the next step. And I'm looking for someone that I really would like enjoy spending time with during this whole process. Um, and surprise, surprise, when you have those three things, it's a joy helping someone navigate this. Yeah, occasionally you go multiple years and you finally go, okay, this is not a problem that we're going to crack. Let's, uh, maybe it's time to throw it in. But that happens very, very rarely. Usually uh, something does come of it. So uh, it's, it, the coaching is, is mostly this, how do you navigate, rather than, I love that idea, let's do it. Do you think it's tougher now or easier than it was in the 1990s and early 2000s to get a startup off the ground? Oh, it's remarkably easier, remarkably easier, and it's a fantastic thing. You know, back in 1997, of course, when we came up with this idea, if you wanted to build an e-commerce website and run an e-commerce business, you had to do everything yourself. You could not go to the cloud and dial up an instance of uh, Shopify and have a commerce website. Mm -hmm. If you wanted a payment portal with the bank, you could just use PayPal or Stripe. If you wanted uh, analytics, just get, a, get a Optimizely. Everything you did, you had to write the software yourself, you had to configure the hardware yourself. And because of that, to go from the idea to finding out whether it was a good idea took us six months and took us a million dollars. I mean, the distance from the idea to the validation of the idea was six months. But now, at least in a technical side, the stack is so much better. You can get all these things that are available on the, on the cloud. All these things exist so that now what's happened is the distance from the idea to the validation can be an hour. It can be no money at all, which means those barriers between taking your idea and quickly and cheaply and easily figuring out if it's a good idea is really short. 
Mm-hmm. It's tremendously liberating. You do not need to, I, you know, I was 38 years old. I was on my sixth company. Uh, it was relatively easy for me to raise the money to take this on. But now you don't need that, Any, which means anyone can do it. You can be 12 years old. You can be living in Kazakhstan. You, you know, your idea, you want it, you like that idea, then there's no excuse for you not being able to quickly find out, in fact, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Then what are the steps? If you have the idea, how do you go and try and find potential investors? What are the big mistakes that you see wannabe entrepreneurs making right now? The biggest mistake is thinking you need to find investors. Uh The biggest mistake is thinking you need to get your MBA first. The biggest mistake is thinking I need to um, get a co-founder. The big, I mean, I can, this list can go on. We can go up for those 30 hours or we were talking about. (laughs) Um, That's the big mistake is there's always some reason why I can't do this. Well, bullshit. You can, you, the, the, again, the cleverness is how do I do it quickly, cheaply, and easy. And rather than me just pontificating, I'll give you an example. Um, and this is from a few years ago, but a young woman, she was still in college, and she had an idea. And the idea was, why I'd like the idea of uh, being able to do a peer-to-peer clothing rental. You know, it's a fancy way of saying, I want to be able to rent my clothes to other people and I want to be able to rent other people's clothes. Mm -hmm. Um, And not a tremendously creative original idea, but who cares? Again, nobody knows anything. And she was saying, well, how do I raise the money to hire someone to build my app? Blah, 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 blah. And I go, okay, let's, let's brainstorm this a little bit. Let's figure out how we can quickly and easily figure out whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. You got a piece of paper? Uh, you have a Sharpie, you have a roll of tape. So I go, let's just write in a piece of paper, want to borrow my clothes? Knock. And let's tape it to your dorm room door. And let's start figuring out tomorrow or now if it's a good idea. The first thing, let's see if anyone knocks. And, <laughs> okay, wow, they do. There's a demand. So now they've knocked. Now let's begin learning what some of the issues are. Oh, they're looking at your clothes and they don't like them, or they do like them. There's problems with fit. There's problems with style. Okay, now you're learning people do want to rent your clothes. Now let's find out how does it feel when that blouse comes back stained? <laughs> or how much what, you have to launder everything? Or what happens when it is wear and tear? You've begun learning right away for a Sharpie and a piece of paper. Now, is it repeatable and scalable? No, but you've begun collecting the evidence of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And now, six months from now, when you do go, this is a good idea. And I do understand the nuance and the subtlety and what it will take and how much I have to charge. Now, when you say I need to raise money, that's a different discussion. Because now when someone says, well, how do you know this is gonna work? Rather than going, imagine if you will. You go, well, for the last six months, I've been running this out of my dorm room and I've had 2,000 customers and I've learned that I have to blah, 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 blah. And that's compelling. Now, when you say to someone, I'd love you to help me as my technical co-founder, and they say, why should I do this? Rather than spinning a, a, a dream for them, you can show them and get them excited because they see the reality of it. That's what I mean by you don't need to raise money. If you have an idea, there's nothing stopping you from right now making those first steps. 
Where do you go when you're looking for insight? I mean, where, where do you find that creativity? You mentioned rock climbing. Do you find it when you're rock climbing or when you're in a corporate boardroom? Where? I see it every day. I mean, I, and, and I do, I, I've been running these workshops for a long time on where do ideas come from. And the, the, the method I would teach you, which is the simplest one, is to basically train yourself to be um, negative, to basically say, what's wrong? To train yourself to look for pain and to see the world as an imperfect place. Because once you see a problem, the ideas for solving it begin popping into your head immediately. And so many of the best ideas I've seen, and I, I, you know, I, I use the word best ideas loosely, come from starting from problems. And I don't mean solving global problems. This is not about, I'm going to cure malaria or, wow, I cure for COVID-19, whatever it is. I mean, things you see every day, things you see in your job, things you see in your hobbies, things you see in your life. Um, bumping into those issues and going, why, why is this so hard? Or why is it still like this? Why isn't there? Why can't I? Why don't they? Uh, that is by far the best way to generate ideas. And once you've trained yourself to see the world as an imperfect place, um, you have the opposite problem. You're overwhelmed with uh, possible things to try. And that's a wonderful problem to have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mark, our show is called Nobody Told Me. So we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? And I'm sure you have a million, but what do you wish someone had told you about dealing with success, disappointment, starting a company, life in general, wherever you want to take it, before you started this grind that's led to so many different companies that maybe you wish they'd told you before because it would have saved you from some very tough times? Ah, it's a good question. And uh, this is going to sound foolish. I don't... I've made I've made so many millions of mistakes. All these things that I've tried, these ideas I've tried that didn't work. I don't view them as things I wish I hadn't done them. Almost everything I've done that's turned out badly has <laughs> been good. <laughs> it, it, it ends up going in some great direction. I guess you know. I wish someone had told me earlier, much earlier about the note that the nobody knows anything thing that I had to learn more slowly on my own. I'm not sure I would have listened to them. Um, uh, I, I would have maybe, maybe I, it's almost ironic to say, it's, it's, I wish I'd listened to them when the lesson that they're telling me is don't listen to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, th- that would have been a helpful thing. That was a trial and error. Uh, it's so, especially early on, so easy to get discouraged when someone says that will never work. Um, and, Early on, it would have been great to have known that. I mean, a moment ago, I told you that story about how it took a year and a half of trial and error to figure out what the model for Netflix would be to make it repeatable and scalable. And one of the components was subscriptions. And I had been a magazine circulation director. I was a direct marketing guy. I knew everything about subscription. But for some crazy reason, I never occurred to me that to try that a year and a half early, earlier. And wow, that would have saved, <laughs> saved a, ton of, oh. a ton of time and money if I had somehow listened to that, my own little voice saying, this, maybe you should try this. You know a lot about this. So I got it two thirds right. Got the e-commerce right. 
I got the personalization right. Ugh, missed the damn subscription. <laughs> Mark, how can people connect with you on social media and, and the internet? Uh, so the best, first of all, the best place to really absorb a lot of these lessons is through reading. That'll never work. I really tried to reveal all the tips and tricks and secrets that I've learned over a 40-year career as an entrepreneur. But for my more uh, short form, if your attention span doesn't lend itself to uh, 100 and 200 pages or so, um, I have a website, which is markrandolph.com. That's Mark with a C and PH at the end of the Randolph. Uh, and there, you can get a link to my blog and all that. And I am on Twitter at MB Randolph and on Instagram at That'll Never Work. LinkedIn, if you can't figure it out, if I'm on LinkedIn, well, then you got a different issue. Uh, <laughs> Mark, thank you. It has just been such a joy to talk with you. I mean, this was like a, a master's class in, in it really business was. and We're entrepreneurship. Man. Talking to you was a bucket list thing and for us. Life. And, yeah. and the book is so fabulous and we can't recommend it highly enough for anyone who's even considering starting their own company and you know wants some encouragement. I love the vibe that you have there. Yeah. Really great tone. Well, Jan and Laura, I am a believer and uh, I'm so glad you gave me the chance to share this, uh, to share this with you and with your listeners too. Well, we really appreciate it. Our thanks to Mark Randolph. Again, his book is called That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. And his website is markrandolph.com and Mark is spelled with a C. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.